Welcome to Voices and Visions, as well as a special bonus episode of Directors Club. Once again, they are um, cross-posted in two separate feeds because I am honored to present a second conversation with a writer-director. His name is Alex Ross Perry. He has given us Impolix, The Color Wheel, Listen Up Philip, Queen of Earth, Golden Exits, and the best film of 2019 so far, in my opinion, Her Smell, which is why I wanted to um, you know, include it in the Director's Club bonus episode uh, catalog, just because I, I feel you know, this film deserves all the exposure, all the press it can get, because it's damn good, and uh, I really, really, really hope you'll, you'll seek it out, because it could very well be um, his, his best film, and for a lot of reasons that we'll get to. And in case you weren't aware, the last interview I did was with one of my favorite actresses working today, Amy Simetz, and we talked Pet Cemetery, horror, losing a parent, um, quite a number of things that uh, made it one of my favorite episodes to date. But uh, of course, another one of my favorite actresses working today is Elizabeth Moss, and she is a force of nature in her smell. The latest from Alex Ross Perry. Her character... Her character here is a little bit Courtney Love, mixed with, uh, I would say, Jennifer Jason Lee in Georgia. And, you know, sort of the band model here is inspired by uh, something like L7, uh, which I was a fan of back in the day, and I completely forgot about them until Alex Ross Perry brought them up, and I was like, oh crap, I gotta watch this documentary that he mentioned. He also enlisted some great songwriting uh, contributions from the band Bully and Anika Pyle, who's a great power pop rocker in her own right, from a band called Chumped. That I'm, I'm glad that she's I'm glad that she's working. I'm glad that she's continuing to tour with a new band, Katie Ellen, I believe. And uh, yeah, she knows how to write a great hook. That's for sure. So all of these elements kind of came together. It's, I mean, I, I've always considered Jennifer Jason Lee in Georgia to be one of my top three all-time favorite performances. It's like neck and neck with Julianne Moore and Safe in terms of all-time favorite performances. And since that kind of, you know, it's infused a little bit here, and you, you know, you 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 got this sort of like panicky ambience going on that's not unlike punch drunk love i mean a lot of the things a lot of things that i naturally gravitate towards and respond to in film are kind of all here so maybe there's a little bit of bias maybe you won't respond as strongly but i think you will i I truly do if if you um make the effort you will be rewarded uh and it's also funny how i even thought of kind of the immediacy of the writing of aaron sorkin and we sort of talk about how that writing style influenced um, him for the, for his latest film here. So you'll learn more in a bit. 
In addition to this interview, um, along with the last one I did that I hope you'll check out, I encourage you to listen to the latest episode of Supporting Characters featuring Mike McBeardo McPadden, who has just put out a great new book, and you can learn all about it by visiting nowplaynetwork.net or wherever you get podcasts. you got to check out Supporting Characters. The latest episode is another terrific conversation that I found to be thoroughly entertaining. So um, get on that right away along with several other shows that have released new episodes, including Drinking at the Movies, Director's Club, of course, uh, Christmas Movies, actually. Fresh Perspective, who had Nick DiGiulio's new producer, Tom Hush, as a guest. They talked about us and Vertigo. And uh, I had to bring up, again, if I didn't bring it up on the last episode, this great new podcast called Genre Grinder. So for you Director's Club subscribers and loyal listeners... You may remember the horror movie show episodes back in the day when Patrick Rapole and Gabe Powers would talk horror for close to four hours. That kind of rhymed. Um, so the this debut episode of Genre Grinder is kind of in that same style. Uh, Gabe hosts this monthly new show where he and a guest dissects a specific subgenre of films. And together they dive really deep into some obscure titles and talk about the genre at large, but really get into some, you know, interesting discussions in the same spirit as something like pure cinema, I would say. The first episode is wonderful, so you get to hear Patrick and Gabe for over two hours talking about proto-slasher films. So I truly, truly hope that if you're a fan of Patrick or Gabe's, and you love cinema in general you'll subscribe to this new addition to the Now Playing Network family, and uh, you, you, you will enjoy it. I, I pretty much guarantee it, especially if you're a fan of Patrick and Gabe, because that's the rapport they have together in the debut episode. Is, is, it, it, it's priceless. It's, it's wonderful. It's an enjoyable listen from beginning to end. Um, uh, of course, it's Gabe you know, taking on different guests each month, and hopefully um, I'll make a cameo on there at some point. I, I have some ideas, at least. And I'm sure you'll have other great guests in the future. Hot off the presses, this just in. Holy cow. Uh, Patrick Rapole, who I just mentioned, has released a new album over at patrickrapole.bandcamp.com. It's called Now More Than Ever. Please check it out. I'm including a link in the show notes because I'm excited to listen to it. And you should be too, especially if you're a fan of um, of this show and Patrick in general. So I wanted to include that really quickly here. And uh, I please check it out. Um, so yes, there will be a couple more episodes of this show here, Voices and Visions. Um, in the works, I would say. But there's a possibility I might take an indefinite hiatus once again. Since I'll be going back to school, working a new job, and doing more in the world of library science and information archiving. That's kind of my ultimate goal for the next couple of years. And it's not to say that I'm done, because I don't want to put this feed to rest. Uh, just because, you know, there might be another great interview that comes my way. And when if that happens, I'm not going to turn it down. So I hope you'll stay subscribed. Um, I, do, I am on Patreon but I understand if, you know, kicking in a buck or two is is a lot to ask for for somebody who's not as consistent as other <laughs> Patreon um, hosts and podcasters out there. It makes complete sense. Um, 
you know, just a little bit every month helps in any way, but it's more for the, the costs of hosting the Now Playing Network website at this point. It's kind of where all the money goes to. Um, so yeah, I, I'm i definitely going to be taking a leave of absence, including uh, no longer review, uh, review, <laughs> reviewing new movies on WGN. Um, you know, and that's kind of a bummer, but I'm also trying to prioritize my time a little bit better. I need to manage my time. Because um, when school comes up, I like to really immerse myself and give 100%. Uh, but like I said, I think the feed will always be up and running for this show. And if a guest or an interview does come my way, I'll still make the effort. I'll still be able to put this together, even if it's not a regular podcast. But I'm hopefully you're used to that by now. Uh, and I'm definitely excited for a particular upcoming returning guest in the very near future. Uh, and if you're a Director's Club subscriber, you'll also get that episode in this feed. But for right now, I just I do want to say thank you for your continued support, encouragement, listenership, and for becoming subscribers to Director's Club, this podcast, and all the many others at the Now Playing Network. It really, really does mean the world to me that um, you love listening to... Not just not just not just my ramblings, but to so many talented people out there who talk passionately and archive conversations of their very own for your listening pleasure. Speaking of pleasure, uh, it was really great to talk to Alex Ross Perry for the uh, second time. The first time um, was actually brought back into the feed um, for Voices and Visions recently. I sort of brought it up alongside another interview just because I thought it'd be cool to revisit something from the past that, uh, you know, I thought this guy got kind of lost. I don't know how, but it did, but it's there. So if you go to voicesvisions.net, you'll find my first interview with Alex Ross Perry pretty recently in the feed. Um, but this one is pretty great. Uh, and cause I, I'm didn't know if I would be able to interview him again. I know he's a busy guy, but, um, yeah, like I said, I'm lucky enough to have talked with him about a tremendous new film starring one of the very best actresses out there. I definitely responded very strongly to this particular film, and I implore you to seek it out immediately when it opens nearby, wherever you are. If you're in Chicago, Alex Ross Perry will be at the Music Box Theater this coming Saturday, April 20th at, f- I almost said 4 p.m., Probably because I saw April 20th and I immediately thought of 4.20, which is hmm, interesting. <laughs> He's actually going to be in town Saturday, April 20th at 8 p.m. for that particular screening. And he will also be here Easter Sunday for an early afternoon screening the next day. So if you are in Chicago, get your butt to the Music Box Theater this weekend. Because not only will you see a great film, but you'll get to hear uh, my guest of this episode... Um, talk greater in detail about making a great film like this. So be on board. He's very smart, articulate, knows his stuff. So support films like Her Smell. And thank you to both Rob Shear and Steve Procopi for making this interview happen. Stick around for the end of this episode because you're going to get to hear my cover song <laughs> that I did several years ago, which... Um, If you've seen her smell, you'll know why I included this particular cover. So without further ado, here is my conversation with writer, director, Alex Ross Perry. You know. 
how's it going? Hey, Alex. How you doing? Good, how are you? Very good. It's a great pleasure to talk with you again. We spoke a couple years back for uh, for Queen of Earth, and uh, definitely one of my favorite movies. And I'm glad. Oh, we, hey, thank you. Yeah, glad we could talk again because your second collaboration is with one of our best actors working today. So uh, let's just briefly talk about the uh, the genesis of this story. When when did you have like a lightning bolt moment? that compelled you to start writing that made you want to uh, craft this into something? Well, it's kind of a series of, of smaller lightning bolts, so to speak. Mm. Um, I, had, I had promised Lizzie at some point before Queen of Earth even came out, but after we had finished making it, that the next character would be a rock star mother who is an addict. Hmm. So that's not really a lightning bolt yet. That's more just like the notion of what would be fun to do with her. But if there's a lightning bolt, it's, it's in the summer of 2016 when in the span of one month after having thought about this character for a year, I saw two Shakespeare productions one Merchant of Venice on stage and another uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, a movie. Hmm. And I saw the, the Guns N' Roses reunion tour that summer. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a heck of a and, combo. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I was just like reading a lot about five-act dramatic structure and then I was reading a lot about Guns N' Roses and thinking a lot about the sort of long, dramatic narrative of bands and the way that a band's life kind of rises and falls if you examine it from afar. And if there's a lightning bolt, it's the month of July 2016 because of all those. And then I just, I knew then what the movie needed to be. And then I started writing. Yeah, and... I could I could see with the uh, like the Shakespearean influence maybe with a touch of Cassavetes uh, too here, but I I just like the fact that you didn't make a you know conventional music biopic because we have you know something like Bohemian Rhapsody which was just completely unoriginal you know so you sort of avoided all those cliches and tropes and you kind of made something a little bit more like what Danny Boyle did with Steve Jobs. He kind of made it more intense and visceral and in the moment, which I really responded to more. Well, Steve Jobs is a huge influence, and I love the movie. And, and yeah, I mean, again, like, if there's something else that's kind of part of the lightning, it's, it's you know, I, I just how much I liked that film, which, you know, had been out for a while when I sort of had the experiences that I just, I just relayed to you, but, um, you know, it like, there's no reason to do a simple cliched version of something. Yeah. You know, like even if you were doing, I mean, that movie proves that even if you are so inclined to, to do an actual biopic of a real person, there are still new ways to do that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you don't have to, I mean, I, I haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody, but like, suffice it to say, like, loving Steve Jobs as I do, I would rather see a movie about the 45 minutes leading up to Live Aid <laughs> yeah. that ends with the band walking out on stage than a movie that celebrates that. And I would rather see a movie about the 45 minutes before you record your biggest hit than I am in a movie that shows the scene where a band records the biggest hit. So by doing something that, you know, is sort of, um, I'm just kind of free as a writer to do whatever I want. And that means I don't have to stick to any cliches because the character is my invention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can just kind of have the freedom as a writer to not do anything that you've seen in a hundred movies and will see in a hundred more. Exactly. And that's, that's exactly what I appreciate about your work in general is that I always get the feeling that, yeah, I have never seen a character this vulnerable or this ridden with anxiety before. And it makes it relatable on a human level in that, in, in that regard, at least at least for me, because, you know, we all have these experiences, like we have to give a big presentation or something and we're, you know, our heart is racing. And to be able to convey that kind of emotion on screen is, it, it's it's kind of a, <laughs> a gift and something that I, I welcome. Uh, and I'm just curious, too, like, what kind of research and preparation did you do? I mean, I know you mentioned Guns N' Roses and things like that, but did you, like, watch other like music documentaries or behind the music kind of stuff to prepare for, for writing the movie and then directing it? Well, a lot of the preparation was just my life of living and enjoying this life and this, you know, this time period. Mm. So, you know, I'm just kind of reapproaching a lot of this stuff that has already existed within me. The fun research, I mean, yes, I watch things just to sort of, get into the mood and be able to convey ideas to production design and wardrobe. So, you know, the L7 documentary pretend we're dead is really great. And it's largely, um, largely, you know, home video footage, which is very much a part of the five interludes in this movie. Right. Yeah. Um, that, that was kind of the biggest thing that I was, if I, if there was anything I made people watch, it was that, um, but, you know, a lot of it was just, like, it, to read about music was very interesting mm. because, you know, generally you think you need to, you know, just listen to some music. Yeah, exactly. But um, to, to then read uh, an oral history or a 33 and a third about a, an era or a moment or an album, it reduces... You know, it doesn't reduce, but it just it takes the music away from it, and it just becomes a narrative. You read a 33 mm. and a third, an album is no longer a 40-minute experience that you listen to in your car or on your stereo. An album is now a narrative about the writing of it and the recording of it and the touring and the critics and the press. And now I was able to think about what it means to be to just to be thinking about music as a narrative. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I have uh, Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville, the 33 and a third for that one. And that put 
Yeah, that, well, that one was very, very relevant, very useful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's, it, it, you're right in that it sort of recontextualized the experience of listening to the album, knowing not just like behind the scenes things, but just how people responded to individual songs and what the artist was going through at the time. I'm also, I'm also curious to like pick up more of those books on instrumental albums because I'm like, well, what, how can you, what can you do with that? That's that's got to be interesting well, too. Yeah, I can't can't say I've read any of those. The one I guess there's one about the um, Super Mario Brothers score that I'm very <laughs> interested in checking out. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, and did you take part at all in the like lyric writing or the songwriting? I've I've actually been a fan of Anika Pyle's band uh, Chumped back in the day. I saw oh yeah yeah and re- really responded to their music and you got. Alicia Bagnano from uh, Bully, who is just one of the best live performers I've seen. I saw her open for Courtney Barnett and was just blown away. Oh, yeah. That'd be a great show. Yeah, for sure. Um, no, I had nothing I had nothing to do. I mean, both of those women were, you know, free to write their songs and their lyrics without my involvement. I, mean, I don't know the first thing about writing a song or writing a lyric. Um so I, it would be crazy for me to take two women who are incredibly talented and have proven themselves, mm. you know, capable of writing great music many times over and step in and act like I know anything that can contribute to their work process. So it was really just about finding who was right for the job. And as you're pointing out, we, we did. Absolutely. Um, and then just kind of explaining the mood and the emotions and the narrative and the what's happening in the scene and what the character might have been through to write this song and then just seeing what both of them came up with. Yeah. And it was, and it seemed to suit Elizabeth Moss in, you know, her voice and just her demeanor like perfectly to where you're like, yeah, I, I forget I'm watching Elizabeth Moss and I'm, I'm, you know, just so immersed in the experience of seeing her perform these songs or, you know, rehearse them in the studio. That's just like, it, it, it came across as really organic. Um, but yeah, I, I was also really struck by the sound design. Cause you have this like eerie ambience going on in the background, like in the red room sequence. And it's, it's like an atonal score almost talk a little bit about, you know, working with sound design and kind of getting the balance right and creating an atmosphere. Cause it reminded me a little bit of what John Bryan did for um, punch trunk love. Well, Punch Drunk Love is certainly very relevant and very, very uh, influential to me. Just, you know, I love that movie, but influential to to Keegan as well, just because it's not a score that, it's not a score that sounds like music. Right. It's a score that sounds like the subjective, internal, feelings and emotions of the character who you are watching. So the score doesn't underscore the scenes and the emotions. The score draws you into what is happening and creates a feeling that you and the character are feeling the same thing right now, which, um, which is very much what Punch Drunk Love does. But, you know, Keegan just really wanted to run with that. And I told him early on that the, that the score need only feel like a panic attack, which mm-hmm. the punch drunk love score does, but mm-hmm. it does a lot of other things. And 
you know, that score is very dependent on the harmonium that you see the character playing. Yeah. But this score, Keegan had the reverse idea, which is none of the score should really come from or sound like the instruments that we see featured in the, in the movie. So the, the score kind of begins when they get off stage uh, at the very beginning when she throws on her guitar mm-hmm. with a kind of electric guitar feedback sound. It starts off seeming like it's a sound effect, but then morphs into the score. And it's not until the end of the movie that you hear score again done by an electric guitar. Everything in the middle is electronic. So Keegan had this idea that this movie about a three-piece rock band would perhaps surprisingly be scored entirely non-traditionally and electronically, which I thought was very inspired. And as soon as he delivered it, the overpowering size and density of his pieces, just they were perfect to edit the movie around. Yeah, it, it, I thought it was kind of brave too to, to make it less percussive, you know, and make it more droney or just have these weird, you know, sort of sounds that you can't quite place what exactly they are in the background, but they do add to that level of of uh, of panic that is reflected in the, in the lead character, and I think that really really was effective. Um. Yeah. Well, there, there, there's there's a there's a bit of a there's a bit of a dance in the movie that's sort of impossible to even art, articulate mm-hmm. um, where one begins and where another ends. But there are there are things in the score that I think one might suspect are sound design. Mm-hmm. There's there's things that Keegan did where he wanted to play with effects and noise and things like crowd sounds that he kind of turned into music <laughs> and there are things in the in the sound design that I think one might think of as being score and they kind of you know Ryan Price the sound designer kind of the way that Keegan had put some sounds into the score Ryan kind of put some some tones and some musical notes into the sound design wow that's really cool i'm i'm picturing Keegan as John Travolta in Blowout, Blowout, <laughs> like not not far off, <laughs> like being really yeah layered and detailed and, and and precise with his choices. That's 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 pretty cool. Uh, uh, it's not far off, and, um, and and you know, but again, like the end result is is cacophonous, yeah. and loud, and it feels. It feels chaotic and, and imprecise, but the, the amount of care and deliberation put into these elements is, is quite strong. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, it makes me want to explore, because I think the moments I started noticing what goes into creating a mood and atmosphere through sound was, you know, David Lynch, of course, because he does so much uh, inventiveness that you don't get to experience very often watching a movie. And so it, it, that's just become more and more of an interest in, in general for me. Cause I am a musician. I'm like, how did, how do you create that sound? And it just kind of feels right <laughs> and complements the movie and the scene so beautifully. Um, it's a whole, it's a whole separate tool that is seldom explored to its full potential outside of a few individual filmmakers and, Certainly, 
in Acts 1 and 3, mm-hmm. we wanted to kind of toe the line of the Lynch vibe in yeah. terms of what you're doing with your sound with your soundscape. Right. And on the flip side, <laughs> there's a pivotal moment that brought me to tears where everything stops and Elizabeth Moss performs Heaven by Brian Adams by herself on the, on the piano and I'm just I just love that there's just something simple and sublime and still and we get to witness an intimate moment between a mother and daughter. So I, I've and personally I've kind of been a, a sucker for power power ballads all my life. So w- what made you decide that was the right song for that particular moment? Well, I myself love power ballads and always have and you know, they just kind of occupy a special kind of sweet spot. Sure. You know, some people might call it a guilty pleasure. I don't really think that's what it's about. I think it's just, you know, a nice emotional song can can be very emotional and as a as a script, act 3 and 4 were always written and envisioned and designed as being, you know, red hell and then this kind of beige, glowy, soft heaven. And, you know, in my earliest outline of the five acts, all I had written may have been as simple as Act 3 is hell and Act 4 is heaven. <laughs> and then at some point, you know, you can never say where, but the idea appeared and um, and it was there. And it just was so appropriate considering the way I, I thought of Act 4 already. But most importantly, you know, someone said, Becky, you know, she's, she's cool, she's, she's in the rock, she's got good taste. She would not like Brian Adams. She wouldn't like power pop yeah. ballads, you know, pop ballads. She would, she would play like a, like a Joni Mitchell song or something. That would be the kind of, like, feminine thing that this woman would have been inspired by or Stevie Nicks. And I was like, well, if this were a real person who, whose life story we had to take account for, you might be right, but I can do whatever I want. And it would be no, no challenge to create at, you know, the 90 minute point in this movie, a deeply emotional reaction to a, a Joni Mitchell song that's kind of already built into the DNA of people's relationship with that music. Sure. If yeah. I can get that, if I can get that emotional reaction from Brian Adams song, then I've really pulled off some sort of a magic trick because that is not a song that people go in expecting to get choked up during, despite it's hard on your sleeve emotions. So it just felt correct because much like, Becky and much like these women and this kind of music, this kind of punk grunge music, it's a deeply unpretentious move to put that song in. Yeah, totally. You know, to to put in, you know, a beautiful show-stopping Stevie Nicks song is a little pretentious. To put in Brian Adams, that's just, you know, that's just commercialism, that's just pop, that's just, you know, total arena rock. And it's just not pretentious. And I don't think these women are pretentious. And it's not a, there's no pretensions in this movie. It's all just, it's just big, huge, sweeping camera movements with big, huge, sweeping performances and big, crazy score. And I want a big, crazy, sweeping, you know, arena pop ballad. 
Yeah, and to strip it down like that with just just the piano, I think added to how genuine it came across, you know, and, and sincere in that moment. Because yeah, maybe she could have played it on her guitar or something, but there was just something simple like her just playing the chords. She's not even like playing a lot of individual notes or anything, or playing the melody. She's just playing the simple chords high up on the piano that sort of, I think, added to that experience. And maybe, you know, part of me is like, hey, this character has, you know, versatile music taste. It's not all just like, you know, uh, Courtney Love screaming whole style rock and roll. There's nothing wrong with liking a power ballad. There's nothing wrong with liking a Richard Marx song or something, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I mean, we'll whole cover Duran Duran on MTV Unplugged. That's not necessarily the coolest band in the world. Um, Nirvana covered Kiss. I mean, you know, anyone can like whatever they want. Your heroes don't have the impeccable, entirely deep cut, very, very proper musical taste that you want them to have. Everyone, everyone likes all sorts of things. Exactly. Yeah. And without giving too much away, I thought it was a really brave note to end on where there is still a little anxiety mixed with the, you know, uh, triumph at the end, you can say, because you're acknowledging that she's gotten better, but there's still going to be struggles. And I think, again, that makes it more grounded and real. Like if, if she, you know, went back out and had another triumphant scene, I think, you know, that wouldn't necessarily felt um, insincere, but I just think it's, it's appropriate to acknowledge the fact that this character is not a hundred percent yet. It may not ever be a hundred percent. And so as a writer, and then when you're editing the film, how do you know this is the end? How do you know this is the end of the story in a way that makes you feel satisfied? Well, I mean, as a writer thinking about act five, you know, I wanted it to sort of be both victory and not victory. Mm. Becky goes out on stage and she does the song and she gives the people what they want. And everyone in the audience may forever say we had we had written her off we thought she was down for the count but she actually rallied and it was amazing but then we give you another kind of second private moment a second little ending where you get the sense that you know her recovery and whatever journey she's been on may still have quite a bit left to go so you know kind of a pyrrhic victory trying to satisfy the fact that she's both a public figure, a, a well-known musician, but she's also a, an individual who is adherent to her family and to her band family, and that you kind of want to resolve both of those things differently and yeah. individually. Yeah, and it, and it just fits wonderfully in that, in, that, in that instance. And of course, it all comes full circle with the, the way you display the title of the film, and yeah, it's just that that's kind of like you, you breathe a sigh of relief and personally I'm just I'm just grateful for having that experience and I can't wait to have it again um at the Music Box Theater in Chicago coming up soon. Oh, cool. I think I think you'll be here for a couple of screenings, right? I will be there Saturday and Sunday, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Looking forward to it. So yeah, thanks again, Alex, for joining me. I've I've been a fan of yours going all the way back to the color wheel and 
your latest. Oh, so nice. Yeah, your latest might be your best, and it's, and it's and it's definitely a triumph, and you should you should definitely be proud. So, uh, yeah, thanks again for talking with me, and uh, all the best to you in the future. Cool. Thanks so much. All right. Later. Please visit VoicesVisions.net for more episodes of this show, along with many others, over at NowPlayingNetwork.net. Thanks again to Alex Ross Perry for being on the show. Check out Her Smell in a theater near you.